Welcome to the Draft Deeper Podcast. This is your host, Nathan Grubel. Joining me as always is my producer, Kevin Black. Keeping the ball rolling this week with the No Ceilings family. If you aren't following us on No Ceilings, at No Ceilings NBA on Twitter, I don't know what you're doing at this point, or if you aren't subscribed to the Substack, NoCeilingsNBA.com. But if you are, you are very much so aware of the guest who I'm having on tonight, somebody who does incredible work for us over at No Ceiling, somebody who is teaming up with me for a little bit of fun writing that's going to come out a little bit later this week. We'll actually, by the time you hear this podcast, hopefully you will have already read the joint piece that Alex and I are working on about Jabari Smith, but Alex Amarante, aka Draft Film School on Twitter, is joining me tonight. We're going to talk about some of his guys and keep the series rolling as far as Who are the guys that everybody at No Ceilings want to bet on as theirs in the 2022 NBA draft class? We're going to talk about some of those targets, and I think we're going to get a little bit of Nick's conversation as well. So, Alex, how are you doing tonight, my friend? Doing well. I'm doing well. Uh, It was a great intro, good plug on our uh, joint piece coming out later this week. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I think this is my my debut episode on Draft Deeper, so uh, glad to be here. Appreciate you asking me to come on and talk some. Knicks and some draft prospects that that I like in this class so looking forward to it and Alex like I said uh, he's done some of the most creative writing that we have at no ceiling certainly has some of the best headlines that we've had on some of I try, I try to work no into the puns yeah absolutely so I'm I'm really excited to have him on tonight so let's let's start off at the top Alex let's just start very general thoughts about where you're sitting with, with, with your team, the team that you're a fan of, the New York Knicks, because I feel like the directions we're going to go tonight, at least two of these guys we know are going to be potential targets for the New York Knicks with the 11th overall pick. And then you got a few guys on the list who, who, who knows, maybe somehow they come and play with a second round pick somewhere and the other two guys end up being targets for the Knicks as well. But let's just start off. I love to, to talk to anybody I can and know silly about their teams and get some insight because you guys are all so incredibly knowledgeable, not just about the draft, but also about the NBA. So give me your Knicks thoughts about what you saw this previous season, what you're expecting them to do with the 11th overall pick, maybe where they could possibly target before we get into some of the guys themselves. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of different directions that the Knicks might go in and a couple of guys we are going to touch upon who, you know, might be on their radar. I think it's funny because they're in a very, you know, questionable spot as a kind of front office, uh, just looking at what direction they want to go in. Do they want to, you know, continue to build around the core that they have of RJ, uh, uh, you know, quickly the young core, or do they want to, you know, stick with Randall as well and kind of, build in like a kind of semi contender for the playoffs over these next few years. So I think that'll kind of give us some insight into where they're going to go at pick 11, but I, there's an obvious hole at point guard, but as yeah. you know, we all pretty much know in this draft class, there's no real top level point guards, at least in the lottery outside of, you know, maybe Jaden Ivey, who's, Um, you know, projected to go, you know, anywhere from four to five, maybe six if he falls, but definitely won't be there at pick 11 for the Knicks. So barring a trade, I don't see them going that route. And then, you know, they do need some wing shooters and preferably ones who can kind of guard the twos and the threes in the world of the NBA, because they do have a lot of 
maybe like on the smaller end of guards, like Quentin Grimes, Emmanuel quickly, RJ Barrett is really their only one guy who kind of is a two way bigger wing. Uh, Cam Reddish, you know, coming on last year could be another potential option, but that's kind of another area of need for them. And then obviously the Mitchell Robinson situation can throw a wrench in this. And if they're, they don't, you know, give them a a long-term contract in the off season, do they just go center uh, and get their replacement at pick 11? So there's a lot of different kind of avenues for them to go. So it's a very interesting draft, I think, for the Knicks. Two follow-up questions about the Knicks, and then we'll get into the, the first guy who would technically fit one of those categories and, and check one of the boxes in terms of the, the positional needs that you just listed off that you think the Knicks should target. My first question would be, you mentioned Emmanuel quickly, and when I had Tommy Dion to talk about the Knicks a little bit, we got into more R.J. Barrett conversation than we did the, the other half of that equation, which I feel strongly should be Emmanuel quickly. I think he should absolutely have a shot at winning that starting point guard job and possibly you know, be, filling that spot for the foreseeable future. Do you envision Emmanuel quickly as a potential starting point guard for the New York Knicks, or do you still feel like they have to go – a different direction, possibly still look elsewhere. Yeah, I think, I think giving him a chance and see what he could do in that role makes a ton of sense right now for where they're at. Uh, I don't know, you know, Derek Rose obviously being on the roster, but it seems like they like to bring him off the bench and he seems really comfortable in that six man role. He really did partner well with quickly um, the year before kind of coming off the bench and really having a dynamic uh, backcourt combo uh, in quickly's rookie year. So that is kind of up in the air right now. But outside of that, there's no other real great option at the moment at point guard. We saw the Alec Burks situation last year. And Alex, Alec Burks is a great you know, role player, rotation guard. But he's just not that floor general that I think Tibbs kind of likes in, in a point guard. And mm-hmm. I think the one thing with quickly that maybe has been a hesitation for Tibbs to go with is that he's not really this downhill driver uh, and gets to the rim a ton, puts a lot of pressure on the defense in that way. Uh, so that might be one kind of hold up from him actually getting a chance. But I, I think he's worth I mean, he showed great strides last year, especially as a playmaker and defender. So I think why not give him a shot in this year? And then kind of you still have Derrick Rose as kind of that that backlog at point guard where you could still play Derrick Rose a ton, of, ton more minutes if you want and split the minutes to 50-50, 60-40 at point guard and kind of work from there. So it's not like I'm trying to say to play quickly 40 minutes a game at point or anything <laughs> like that, but like at least 25 minutes per game, 30 minutes per game, I think is definitely doable. Is there any shot, any shot that Deuce McBride could possibly become that guy a little bit down the road? Yeah, I think there's an outside chance. I think he has lo- a longer way to go offensively than quickly does like defensively, I guess. So they're kind of flip-flopped in their strengths. But I do like McBride's defense a ton. I do like his playmaking ability. The shooting definitely has to come around, especially with the Knicks roster that is kind of lacking in that department. So there is an outside shot. But again, there's just so much backlog with young guards on this team that it's just tough to give a lot of them the run and opportunity. We saw them get more run at the end of last year when the season was kind of lost, but you know, I I think Deuce has a chance, but quickly I think has a much better chance. And then my second question, I know I'm, I'm technically stuffing three questions into this, but I had to just get a little quick in about uh, Deuce McBride quickly. But my second question 
if the Knicks would target a center with the 11th pick, given some of the options on the board, one that I, I keep alluding to, I promise we're going to talk about this guy very, very soon. Would you be disappointed if they went the direction of center versus some of like the wings, for example, who could be on the board at 11? Uh, I personally would be slightly disappointed, but at the end of the day, I would understand the philosophy behind it. Tibbs like the, likes these rim running centers, rim protectors, and you have two in this class right around that 11 range with uh, Jalen Duran and Mark Williams that could fit seamlessly as Mitchell yep. Robinson replacements. So I, I would totally get it from a fit standpoint. I would rather take the swing on a higher upside wing shooter, wing defender type, um, you know, Bennett Matherin, uh, you, know, you know, guys like that, even Johnny Davis, uh, Dyson Daniels. I would, I would take a, a wing bet on one of those guys over a center, but I, I totally understand kind of the fit and philosophy behind, you know, going the center out if they don't bring Mitchell Robinson back. So there's a great chance that a lot of the wings we could talk about in that category, Alex, will be off the board by the time the Knicks would pick at 11, unless they would move up somehow and put themselves in the position to draft one of these guys. I say that. However, if there are so many players clustered in that archetype, right, and, and it's such a desired archetype for the NBA or these guys who play anywhere from the two all the way up to the four who can stretch the floor, definitely have an outside shot, and you can they, they can hang their hat on defense to an extent. If there are a number of those guys, one of them has to fall, right? You, you would expect one of them to fall, just given some other areas of need that these lottery teams could look to target. And one of the guys who could fall, I think a lot of a lot of New York faithful are hoping that this guy falls. The first guy we're going to talk about today, who is one of your guys for the 2022 NBA draft cycle, A.J. Griffin, who talked about him a few times on recent podcasts. But Alex, I don't know, man. I don't know. He's even after hearing some very kind words about him and, and sort of getting a better picture on how I should treat his evaluation from some knowledgeable guests, I'm still not a hundred percent sold. And I, I released the last episode of my big board series on this podcast feed the other day. And I went over the guys who I have ranked in the lottery. And, and obviously AJ Griffin is, is a lottery prospect. I think if anybody would have him outside the lottery, I think to an extent they're, they're overthinking some of the negatives in his evaluation. He's a lottery prospect, but I had him at 12. I did not have him in the top 10. I didn't have him in the top eight. There are a lot of people who are putting out mock drafts with Intel who say that he's not going to slip past like eight or nine. There are some others who you talk to who are doing mock space more on their own evaluations. And there are plenty of those mock drafts out there who have AJ Griffin going to like the Wizards one pick before the Knicks at 11. I, I understand the shooting ability. I understand the catch and shoot game, the catch and drive game, as I've said about on other episodes. Where are you at on AJ Griffin overall in your evaluation? Why is he one of your guys? Maybe talk about some of the positives that you really like about his game, some of the negatives that you see, but you're willing to look past to an extent to, to claim him as one of your guys and, and maybe someone who you would love to see the Knicks target with the 11th pick. Yeah, and, you know, I get the hesitation for people to kind of fully buy in with AJ Griffin, and we'll – We'll get into that a little bit, but I think sure. from the jump, you having him at 12, I don't think is anything crazy uh, low or anything like that. I have him at five, but 
context wise, give me that sales pitch, sir. Give me the damn sales pitch. Cause I, I, I would have been like a month and a half ago. I would have been with you. I swear to God, I would have been with you. I talked about with myself as, as I do so much in doing this evaluation, I know I'm a draft sick. I'm a crazy person, but in conversation with myself, I was like, is AJ Griffin one of the top five best players in this draft class? Cause he'll have flashes on film where he's putting together some of these ridiculous mid-range pull-ups where he, it seems like he hangs in the air for forever and he's hitting these tough shots. And then you're, you're throwing in the three-point percentage. And there's just, there's multiple reasons when you start to picture it together. Like, is he one of the top five guys in this draft class? But I go back and I watch some of the defensive stuff. I go back and I look at some of the lack of playmaking to an extent. And I'm like, I, are, are there just other guys I'd rather take on the board? But you, you still have him at five. I want to hear the sales pitch. Yeah. So for me, the after, so I have a clear like top four, right. In yes. a, a tier on their own with Paulo Chet, Jabari and Ivy. And yeah. then, but after that, for me, like five to the end of the lottery is pretty flat. So it's like AJ Griffin, Benedict Matherin are back to back on my boards. There isn't much really deciphering between like those two guys and even guys like he Murray, Murray, John, Johnny Davis going down the list. But AJ for me, I'm higher on him just because I'm probably buying a little bit more of those flashes. And, and given the fact that his, the end of his high school basketball career, you know, he basically didn't play for almost a year and a half before coming to Duke. And then he kind of lost the preseason at Duke with uh, an apparent knee injury that he recovered from, you know, quicker than I think anyone anticipated. It was kind of questionable what the injury actually was. And so I think some of the hesitation on in terms of like the defense where his feet are a little slow, uh, he's slow on rotations, things like that, I think can get ironed out in the long run, just given his frame and strength. I think that in and of itself will kind of let him be a, not even be like a positive defender, but get him to a point where the shooting and the offensive ability will negate kind of the, the defensive negatives that he'll bring to the table. And I think the strength and, and the wing, wingspan and, and size that he has will allow him to guard multiple positions. Now, whether that's, you know, one through three or, you know, threes and fours, just given his strength, I think, you know, it's up in the air, but I'm going to buy into that a little bit more than probably you or anyone else who's sure. a little lower on him. And, you know, who knows, like it, it could go totally either way. You just continue to not be great on defense. He can improve. Um, he can get worse. So that is kind of more up in the air, but offensively, I uh, fully buy the shooting. Uh, his touch is, is amazing. You mentioned the, the catch and shoot stuff. And that was really all he was pretty much asked to do at Duke. Uh, just given that the talent that they had on that roster and a lot of guys who won the ball in their hands to create offense, a lot of it ran through Paulo, uh, Trevor Keels, uh, Wendell Moore did a lot of off ball stuff, but he had some on ball creation duties as well. So he kind of plugged into that, uh, you know, catch and shoot spot up role and he did it wonderfully. I mean, as an 18 year old freshman, hadn't played basketball in a while, he came in, it took him a little bit to get out of the gate, but he really, you know, found his footing on that team being the floor spacer, uh, attacking closeouts, getting to the hoop, uh, finishing in traffic and, and just knocking down shots. And I think that's kind of his floor offensively. I think there's a lot to unlock. Uh, I just went back 
it, we I wrote a piece with Maxwell uh, with AJ Griffin on, on no ceilings that we kind of touched on his strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, the passing was one thing where coming into it, I, I thought it was, you know, a real negative area, but after going back and reviewing the tape, there actually are some solid passing reads that he makes, especially off of like driving kicks uh, and, and weak side, uh, you know, passing rotations. So I think there is a little bit more on ball stuff to unlock with him and hopefully he gets in a, you know, developmental system where he can learn and, and take his time. So that's kind of an all encompassing of, I do buy those flashes more than I buy kind of the negative flashes. I asked Rucker this question a few nights ago, and I, I will ask you the same question is, is this a situation with AJ Griffin where we're going to look back like two years from now and he will have had plenty of time to, to season and marinate within a, a, an NBA scheme on, on both sides of the ball, really. And he'll have taken his lumps, but he will have been coached up in the right way and he'll sort of made up for lost time. And some of the time that he didn't have to play on the court towards the end of his high school career because of so many injuries that he suffered, unfortunately. And they're just, he didn't have the same experience, the same amount of reps to really begin to process the game at a high enough level. And then he comes to Duke and he sort of has to fit into the role you were talking about a very much so off ball role, basically I talked about right now, he is kind of like a two decision player, but in reality, that's really all the room that Duke had for him. So do you think we're going to be looking back two years from now, he's had all of these different reps and he's had some time in the G league possibly, or, or maybe even playing like a backup on an NBA team. He's gotten the experience that he's needed to, to really see the floor better on both sides. And we're like, a lot of those questions just kind of dissipate because we see all he needed really was the time and the experience and the repetitions to bring more of that game out of him and be more than just that catch and shoot, catch and drive kind of guy. Yeah, hundred percent. I think there, there's a real chance that that happens. You know, he was 18 years old. He's still 18 years old. He played yeah. uh, the whole season at 18 and taking just taking that step up in competition to being on, you know, a title contending team is huge, right. For, for any player. And I think, you know, shooting 45% from three as a freshman just, I think people just see that number and think of him as only being a shooter. And even if he is only a shooter, like, and just marginally gets better on defense, like that's an NBA rotation player right there. So he just needs to make strides here and there on the you know fringes to become that long-term rotational role player on the wing, being that three and D guy. And then I think there is still some, you know, maybe not star uh, power to unlock, but like some high level role player, player star or star potential where he is doing more on ball stuff, doing more playmaking that I think, yeah, when he does get in a system with coaching, with a training program that can hopefully get back to some of his athleticism that he had in high school, I think that's really when you unlock kind of what AJ Griffin can be, you know, four or five years down the road. So you talked about just now unlocking star potential in this range with that pick at the wing spot. And there's another player, Alex, you wanted to talk about who I, I, I still have a few questions, but I've said it on this podcast feed multiple times when he's come up in conversation. I fully acknowledge 
the star potential that this guy has. I'm being dead serious. Like there, there is moments when Usman Jang, for as much as he struggled the first half of the year with New Zealand breakers, you flip on the film and there's like three to four games in particular where there were some like Paul George type moments to what he was doing on the offensive side of the ball. And he's now reportedly measuring it at like 6'10". Like this dude is tall. He's long. He can handle the ball. He can operate out of pick and roll. We know the kind of shooting touch that he has. I don't want to take away everything from your possible explanation about what you like and don't like about his game. But this dude has some serious chops to operate with on both sides of the ball. And he finished at 15 on my board. I come back to, should he have been higher on my big board? Because he seems like he seems a little raw in some areas, but at the same time with all of this upside with his size at a position of need in the NBA, you, you sit there and like you, you see some of the conversations we're having in those silly group chat, like a few days ago, for example, we're talking about like Portland's targets at seven. If they keep the pick and like who's Jang, like we're throwing around his name as like a possible target that high. And it, I sit back and I'm like, maybe, may, maybe that's crazy, but, but maybe it's not like if a team really wants to take a long-term swing, are there really too many prospects better in this draft class to take like a long-term swing like that on? So like if New York went that direction at 11, for example, we're, we're going to use the Knicks as, as the team of example in this, in this conversation, Alex, I mean, that that's your team. That's, that's part of why you're here to, to give that perspective, but tell me what you like and what you don't like about Jang and, and where is he kind of at on, on your personal board right now? What are some of your expectations for him when he comes into the NBA? Yeah. So I have him, right at 11. So perfect. Perfect Um, spot. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Um, So this would be the pick for the Knicks specifically, if they wanted that, you know, long-term star upside play. Uh, This is the guy in that range that you take the swing on. You mentioned all the intangibles with, you know, measuring at maybe six, 10, seven foot wingspan. Uh, His playmaking really jumps off the chart, especially in the role. Uh, there aren't many guys his size that have that feel and that passing touch in that, you know, in the pro league at 18 years old, uh, you know, LaMelo ball obviously is just otherworldly w- with that. So no comparison there, but a step below two steps below, I think it is totally, you know, welcoming for, for a six ten wing forward, whatever position uh, you want to put Jang at, but that's kind of the one area where I get the most excited about just because that can unlock so much for an offense. And you mentioned his shooting and, you know, yeah, he struggled just overall in the NBL for the first, you know, 10 to 12 games of the season. And he really, really improved. And you saw that improvement in pretty much every aspect of the game of basketball, right? Like shooting. He just wise, looked more confident in the yeah, second exactly. half of the year. Like he, he was starting to get more aggressive, driving to the basket, finishing through contact while that's still kind of his one area of major improvement needing just being to add strength and weight and being comfortable taking on contact at the rim he, he showed strides in that he, he was knocking down more shots he was making more pat, uh, pick and roll reads he was being more assertive and yeah he definitely grew more confident it looked like as he kind of you know molded with that team and I think they had some COVID stuff going on earlier in the year too just you know missing players and you know, having to shut down practices and stuff. So that could have kind of added to the the issues early on, but yeah, he's just a fun player to watch and you look at him. Yeah. He's raw, but there's just so much to work with so much to mold with him. He has the size 
He has athleticism. And we haven't even mentioned the defense yet. That's another area that he improved on mightily. Um, you know, our own Tyler Metcalf wrote a, wrote a piece on his uh, perimeter defense where, um, you know, some of the, the tape, you know, can be rough at times, but when he really locks in and he shows that potential to move his feet on the perimeter, block shots, weak side rotations, uh, I, I think he has some stuff to iron out on that end for sure. But there's just so much to work with with this kid. And I think sky's the limit for him. I think he does have that star potential, especially this late in the draft. You, you don't really find that far too often. So if the Knicks specifically were going to go that route, looking for their next star, I think, you know, this Usman Jang would be kind of the guy to target at 11. So I want you to stay with me here, Alex, for these two questions, because if the answer to both of these questions is yes, then all of a sudden we're now painting the picture as to him being one of the most versatile players in this draft class, like very similar to how we've kind of all been talking about Dyson Daniels as one of the most versatile wings in this class. We might be putting Jang in the same conversation. If he isn't already for some people out there, if we can answer yes to both of these questions. So my first one is we've kind of been pegging him as a wing or to an extent because of his size, you mentioned the forward position. Is he just a really big ass guard who is going to, he's going to play like the shooting guard position in the NBA at 6'10", do you think that he slides his feet well enough on the perimeter, he's quick enough on defense, and then he he is deserving enough of kind of those, those primary or secondary ball handling duties to where he's kind of playing, you know, at a guard spot in between some wings and forwards and, and next to a point guard? Is he just like a big ass too? Yeah, I don't think that's crazy. I think especially offensively, I think he, he should definitely get at least secondary playmaker opportunities. Um, and then, you know, as he moves to the prime of his career, maybe he's just your primary offensive kind of engine uh, as a creator uh, for others and for himself. That would be kind of like his, his top end outcome. Uh, defensively, I don't know if I want him kind of switching out to one the quicker ones and twos in the league. Uh, I do think, you know, there are times of time where he's is a little slow and just he's just too big, right, to, to move on the perimeter. Sure. Just don't move like that naturally at his size. So I think him guarding like maybe twos and threes, um, depending on how much strength he can add uh, and how you know tougher he can get on the defensive end, maybe he can guard fours as well. So yeah, I think he does have that kind of just versatility, both offensively and defensively. But I do think he does have the guard skills to be, uh, you know, that two and maybe a primary initiator guard down the line as a top end outcome. But uh, defensively, I think I'd be more comfortable with him kind of guarding some twos and then probably primarily threes. My second question comes back to some of the defense and, and some of the physical things, because really, Alex, that that's where I'm the most concerned about his game right now is his lack of strength and him not being able to absorb contact in some matchups. And I think to an extent, it also has deterred him a little bit from getting even more downhill, which has led to some of the poor shot selection that we saw, especially in the first half of the year, like some of those perimeter shots that he was taking, like some of those pull-up threes some of those pull-up mid-range jumpers. I think he has the ability to get to the basket, but if he can't finish through the contact, there's the, sometimes there, there's a block there where players just feel like I'm, I'm big, I'm 6'10", I'm long, like I can just rise up over and take this shot regardless of how good quality of a shot it might be versus trying to get to the basket, draw contact, get to the free throw line, which as we know, 
that's one of the ways where guys really become star scorers in the NBA at that wing spot, right? When they're willing to absorb the contact, get downhill, and either look to finish around the basket or, or get the contact, then they can go to the line. That's really how they up their scoring average in an efficient way. But I, I don't know if that's a confidence. I, I really just think a lot of this stuff, both on offense and defense, comes back to the body. I project him to be able to add weight safely just fine. Like, I think his body's built to add, you know, another 10, 15 pounds. He's going to get stronger as he's in the league, like two to three years. I think he's going to be at a point where he's physically ready enough to take on a much larger role, particularly on the offensive side of the ball, as well as defense, potentially guarding up some positions, not just guarding down like we were talking about. Are you in a spot where you look at him, you think he's going to be in a similar position? You think he's going to add on the weight, get stronger, and do more of your concerns with this game tied back to the physical stuff? Like, how, how do you see that playing out? Because that's how it plays out for me. But I think he's going to be just fine. And I think that once he does add that 10, 15 pounds, he gets stronger. I think we're really going to be seeing potentially a very dangerous player in the league in like two to three years and a potential star. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I, I think he'll be able to add to his frame, you know, like you mentioned, 15, 20 pounds, whatever that number is. I think the other question marks kind of are around the finishing, right? Will he, once he gets that strength and, and the body changes, will he still kind of go back to taking those floaters uh, over defenders instead of going through them and getting yeah. all the way to the rim? That is kind of the thing that's still going to be up in the air, even after he gets that, you know, added strength. So that would be the one question that I would still have, but from just a strictly frame perspective, I think he will get enough strength where he can do those things. It'll just be if he does it and if he does it consistently enough to be that, you know, dangerous three level scorer that every team is looking for and who can also pass the ball, just that, that total kind of offensive engine, uh, you know, from a star upside potential. Massive, massive upside. And we see these guys when we, when we throw the word engine around and we try and peg that to somebody's upside, it's not just the scoring. It's not just the three-level scoring. It's also about making the right decisions off of certain action. We've seen Jason Tatum make that leap tremendously this year for Boston, right? And then and being that guy, that that total offensive package that takes years and years and years of developing in the NBA. So that that's not something that Jang can morph into within his first year or two in the NBA. It's going to take some time, but trying to find those guys. And, and targeting players who could become that one day down the line, that's really the type of star hunting you're supposed to be doing in the NBA draft. And I think when we tie all of those things together, that's why we're hearing Jang's name pop up in so many circles. As Is he, is, is he a guy who's automatically going to, to rise up a lot quicker in the draft than we expected? Like maybe he's in play at pick number six or pick number seven or pick number eight after sitting and really thinking about it, especially we were all after we were all having some of those conversations in the group chat, I'm coming around to that idea. And I, I feel I still feel good about where I have him on my board because there are just some other players who I would prefer to draft over him. But when we talk about the true upside swings in this draft, I loved Alex that you chose him as one of your guys because I think you and I are thinking on very similar wavelengths when we talk about his game. So there's two more guys that you wanted to talk about who. At least not anymore. I don't think they'll be in play for the New York Knicks at, at number 11. Maybe maybe some absolutely batshit crazy stuff happens on draft night, which we're expecting to, and, and somebody jumps up the board. But really, these next two guys, these are second-round targets, right? 
The first one out of these two, we'll, we'll save the, the potentially the spiciest player for last. We'll talk about Jake Laravia out of Wake Forest first as, as one of your guys. And I was very curious when you brought up his name in terms of players you wanted to talk about because he's he's gone under the radar, at least through the college season, to an extent. And he started to get some, some pre-draft workout type of buzz. Um as we got closer to the, the draft lottery, then the combine happened and he ended up basically shutting it down at the combine, kind of signaling to some people to think, does he have a promise in the first round? He has a very interesting case as an NBA player, six, nine, plenty of size, plenty of length can potentially really, and I mean, really shoot the ball, right? Like if everything breaks, right. He shoots up to what his form shows on film he could potentially be like a 38 to 40% three point shooter. And you can throw in all the playmaking stuff, all of the cutting that he does on offense. I think defensively is where some people have some questions, which I'm curious to get your take on his defense, Alex, but why is he one of your guys for this draft cycle? And which, would you draft Jake Laravia in, in the first round if you were an executive? Yeah, I would, I would draft him in the first round for sure. I think, so we, we, we talked about, you know, AJ Griffin, Usman Jang, they're two like wildcard prospects, right? Yep. Jake Laravia is kind of boring. Right? He's like, <laughs> he's, like uh, he's just like a solid role player on a good team. He, he'll do the role that you ask him to do. You mentioned the shooting. I think, I think he's going to be a lights out shooter, uh, especially, you know, catch and shoot off of spot ups. And for him, it was just the, he didn't take a lot of them. I don't know what it was like, but you look at the tape, like he has a beautiful jumper. Like the, the mechanics are there. He gets it off quick enough. Like he knocks him down when he takes them. It's just, he didn't just didn't take enough of them. So the track record just isn't there. And for me, defensively, you mentioned some people might have question marks with, you know, him on the defensive end. And I think more so probably guarding on the perimeter is probably yeah. the biggest question mark, uh, you know, when he's switching out on guards, he can get beat off the dribble, but he also showed some great fundamentals in being able to recover or recover yeah. enough into help where he was able to get back and, and it doesn't just blow up in the entire defense's face. That gives me a little more promise on his defensive side. I think he's a great help defender. He showed some great rim uh, weak side rim protection at Wake Forest. He's just a very smart basketball player on really both ends. You also mentioned the playmaking. I think that's a very underrated part of his game. And I just think he's just going to fit into whatever team that drafts him and he's going to do, you know, the role at the ask, which I think is probably going to be, you know, a little bit of pick and roll here and there, uh, playmaking on the short roll, spotting up, uh, working out of the post as well. He's a really good post player on offense and then defensively just playing within a scheme. I think he'll have no problems, you know, learning whatever scheme uh, the team that drafts him is going to run on the defensive with coverages so from that standpoint I think he is worthy of a first round pick I don't think at pick 11 I would take him but you know, <laughs> if you get down even in you know the 20 to 25 range I think that's a totally like reasonable range to, to target a guy like that especially if it is from a contending team just looking to add on kind of the edges of their team and just adding another role player who can get you know playoff minutes early on in their career I think Jake LaRavia has that outcome. 
So the, the, the biggest highlight to his offensive game at certain points this year was the cutting and kind of how he can change a game just from that aspect. His, his baseline cutting, his timing, his awareness, his understanding of what the defense is doing around him to take advantage of those opportunities. That's, that's a boring thing to, to talk about for, for podcasts like us, right? Like your selling point, oh, you're a really great cutter. It's like, well, that's, that, that's, not, that's not making the money uh, over here in terms of a podcast topic, but what is <laughs> what what does though is some of the playmaking that you touched on Alex and and go back to that for a second because when we say playmaking maybe not in the most traditional sense of what people generally think about when the word playmaking is used like pick and roll like very on ball live dribble passing but Jake can be a very interesting connector type of player in the NBA and touch on that aspect of it for a second like Touch on for, for the audience how important it's become nowadays in the NBA to have these connector type players anywhere between six seven to six nine uh, on an NBA floor. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah, I don't envision him running a ton of pick and rolls and being like your primary playmaker, right? I don't think right. anyone does. But it's just all about ball movement, right? You see yep. the Warriors, you watch them in the NBA Finals. Now you just move the ball. Don't be a ball stopper. That's what Jake Laravia is going to bring you in terms of passing. And he could do it off of, you know, multiple reads. You could do them when he's working out of the post, kick it to the weak side corner, open three. We've seen that plenty of times when yep. he was at Wake Forest. Uh, we, we see him, you know, off of spot ups, attacking closeouts and doing dump offs to big men down low. Uh, you mentioned cutting. You can cut for his own basket or he can cut just to get open and then, you know, shift the defenses and then pick out the open uh, extra pass. So it's just all about playing within an offensive scheme. And yeah, like you mentioned, being that connective piece where when the ball comes to you, you're always thinking one step ahead and you know where the next pass is going to be. I think he has that ability and he's shown it when he was at Wake Forest. Uh, I think he'll be able to do that when he's running in an offensive system that's predicated on ball movement. So I think those are kind of the, the things that I'd be looking for him to bring kind of on that playmaking front. And at the end of the game, really, that's what winning is all about, just being that connected piece. If you're not going to be a star, just play within your role. And I, I really envision him just doing that seamlessly uh, at the next level and fitting alongside winning basketball. The threshold nowadays in the NBA, and I, I, I tweeted about this the other day, but it's really it, it's hitting home to me now more than ever where the, the game, the game has changed. Like when we're doing our job, as scouts, right? There, there, there are certain arguments that I could once make for certain types of players that I just can't make anymore because where the NBA sits at the intersection of size and skill and IQ and shooting ability, like the, God, the threshold is just so high to actually operate and be able to stay on the floor in the highest levels in, in, in the NBA nowadays in the playoffs. And that's the selling point for, for Jake LaRavia for taking him higher than you and I might've guessed like three or four months ago. It's that where the game has now shifted. And I think we all have to live with where it is and, and acknowledge where it is that you just have to be able to do a little bit of everything on the basketball floor. And maybe Jake LaRavia isn't doing everything at an excellent level, but the fact that he is six, nine, and he can handle the ball a little bit. He can make all the right reads out of multiple actions, as you highlighted, the shooting ability, the, the ability on defense to maybe you know that you're not the quickest guy, but you at least understand how to play 
against other players, you understand the level of space that you should probably give yourself to where you're not playing too far up on a guy to where if you don't have the quickest of feet, they're easily going to get by you. Uh, having the awareness to be able to play help defense, help protect the rim from the weak side. Like these are all things that Jake LaRavia did at Wake Forest. And oh, by the way, when he had to play up against competition, guys who are bigger than him, like a Paolo Bencaro or a Mark Williams, for example, at Duke, he guarded those guys and he actually did a pretty decent job in, in doing so. A lot better of a job than I think some people would want to uh, want to say that he probably could have not seeing him, you know, months before that, right? Not being fully aware of his game. You're probably looking at Jake Laravia like he's not going to be able to guard Paolo Bencaro like that, except he did. And, and Paolo Bencaro is one of the most talented players we have in this entire draft. So I think just that selling point of Jake Laravia can do enough things at, at, at a good to potentially very good level on the basketball floor at that size. These are the types of players that NBA front offices need to be targeting nowadays. And so that's, that's the sales pitch. And I'm glad that you wanted to come on the podcast feed, Alex, and really nail that, that sales pitch and really hit it home for the audience, because that's just where we're at nowadays in, in, in the game. And really the last player that you wanted to talk about this, this is the spicy guy that we can talk about tonight is his draft stock is just all over the place. There are some people who came away from the combine saying that he didn't do himself any favors because he didn't want to play in the games. The athletic testing was poor. We know the type of season that he had at Milwaukee. He really did not have any standout moments. But Patrick Baldwin, I still have a first-round grade. I believe I finished with him on the board at 24. I think I finished with him on my board at, at 24. I don't have it up immediately right in front of me. But like a late first round player at this point. And he was a top 10 guy for a lot of people preseason. Then he kind of dipped down into the late lottery. Then he started sliding around like that 18 to 20 range. And now Alex, we're at the point where some people are putting him in play for, like you mentioned, pick 42 in the 2022 draft. Like he might potentially be on the board now for, for pick 42. That seems to be where his stock is. And it got to the point where a lot of people were like, why, why doesn't he go back to school? Why doesn't he just transfer into a different situation and go back and, and show people maybe he is more of the player that we saw, you know, in with the USA team, maybe, maybe he is more of the player that we saw before he got to college in his high school days where he was a primary to an extent handling the ball out of pick and rolls and he was making plays for others. And he was the lights out shooter that, that he showed, um, on film at times, at least that's what the shooting stroke looked like. One of the interesting points is he looks so good shooting the basketball on film when you're just evaluating like what his mechanics look like. But some people have brought up, and I'm not an expert on all of the, the pre-college numbers, but there have, have been enough that I've seen posted on social media to where like he's, he's never really been like the efficient shooter by the numbers at any level that I think we would like him to be. So it's really how much stock are you putting in the eye test versus what the numbers are telling you and what some of the production actually turned out being. So I'm curious where you're still at on Patrick Baldwin, Alex. Why, why is he someone that you wanted to still talk about and highlight tonight? Where, where, where do you sit on him as we had about, it, about a week left before the draft? Yeah, so I have him at 24 as well. So this okay, might be, yeah, <laughs> perfect spot. There we go. This might be this might be a more boring conversation than what uh, you know the audience was thinking going into it. But yeah, I mean, if he's there at 42, I'm sprinting the podium and taking him for the Knicks. Uh, but for me, <laughs> keeping him at 24 is 
just a real giving him the benefit of the doubt for this, you know, rough freshman year that he had at Milwaukee. If you go back and watch the tape, it's, it's, he had no space to deal with. He had no really high level guard play to help get him in the ball with advantageous situations. And that's just not playing to his strengths. I, I didn't really ever see him as kind of this on ball, you know, we t- we've been talking about offensive engine. I've never seen him as that guy. I've just been seeing him as this complimentary, maybe second option, 6'10", 7'2", wingspan, sharpshooter who can help attack closeouts here and there. Uh, he has some, you know, impressive passing reads as well. Uh, he did get some pick and roll uh, run for him at Milwaukee, where it did show some impressive kind of reads um, and got out in transition, pushed the ball. So it wasn't all negative, but it was mostly negative, I would say, his freshman year. And then you mentioned the combine stuff. Obviously, the athletic testing really kind of jumped off the page for for negative reasons where couldn't really jump very high, wasn't very quick. And I, obviously, the measurements were, came in good, which which is a positive. But I still think there's something in there where he's big enough and I buy the shooting enough, even though the numbers, you know, you mentioned don't really show it. I think his mechanics are fine. He gets it off quick enough. He has shown the ability to to knock down catch and shoots. He's shown the ability even off the dribble. I think he was uh, something like 70th percentile uh, on synergy in the half court off the dribble. And a lot of that is coming from three in the mid range. So those numbers, uh, you know, could get better with better shot selection when he's not double teamed almost every <laughs> possession. So I'm just at this late in the first round, I'm buying the pre Milwaukee tape enough where he still has a you know high level role player outcome. I think just given his size and, and ability on the offensive end, and we haven't really touched upon defense yet. But again, size translates. Uh, I think he's another guy who needs to gain strength and really gain aggressiveness on the defensive end in order to really translate and reach his kind of high-end outcome. I do think as a weak side rim protector, he has shown some flashes, uh, even at Milwaukee. Where he, was, he, has, he was good defending around yeah. the basket at times at Milwaukee. Like, I, like I, I don't just say that to say it. I mean, like he, there were some moments on film where he was good. Yeah. defending around the basket and it makes me question like you were you were going to talk about the defense like what where what do you think his position is defensively in the NBA like is is there a small chance where he could actually become this really really interesting stretch big like this stretch center and that that might be a role for him in the NBA that I, I don't I haven't I've never really heard that talked about at least in public circles but is there any chance that that might be a role for him because that's that's an important role nowadays if you can play it to an extent in the NBA. Even if you're only playing that for like eight to ten minutes a night, like that's something NBA teams are always looking to, to, to bring out of the tool chest every now and then. Yeah, I don't know if I would go that far, but I'm not going to just totally take it out of the realm of possibility. I think he has the instincts to be a really good rim protector. And, you know, more so he's shown it, you know, weak side rotating over, but he also has, you know, you know, in the post has, has blocked some shots as well, but I think he would need to add a lot more strength and just get I would agree. aggressive. And because I think if you're going to play him as your sole kind of rim protector, big man out there in like small ball lineups and the other team has kind of still has a bruiser in the game, like he's just going to get 
you know, like destroyed yep. in the post, I think, in the NBA and get dunked over a lot. We mentioned the athletic testing. He's not a great vertical athlete. So I think he would struggle there. But I think he does have the instincts on defense. It was more so an effort thing, at least at Milwaukee, where his team was just getting blown out almost like every game that he was playing. And especially, I think, the game against Florida kind of highlighted that, where at the beginning of the game, he was really aggressive, really active, and then things started to take a turn for the worst. And he kind of just gave up defensively and, uh, you know, wasn't trying on rotations, was getting blown by. So I think just staying locked in, um, at the end of the day, he's not going to be able to get away with that at the NBA level. So it'll have to change (laughs) from a mindset standpoint on that aspect. But I do think the instincts are there. The size is there. Can he play center for late, like you mentioned, eight to 10 minutes a game at some point? Yeah, I could totally see that. Um, you know, you mentioned, we're talking about, you know, Jabari Smith, uh, in our piece that's going out this week and they're similar, you know, prototypes of the same player, right? They're 6'10", shoot first forwards who have some intriguing, you know, rim protection and, you know, sliding their feet ability on the perimeter on defense. Uh, um, it's just the Jabari Smith is just better at every, every one of those aspects. <laughs> That's why he's, he's the better prospect. What, what, was Jabari Smith basically what we hoped Patrick Baldwin would have been this year? Is that basically like, like one of the better compliments we can give Jabari Smith? Cause compared to where they were preseason like that, that's really how it seems like this, this whole damn thing has played out. Yeah, no, I, I, I think it is. And you never know. I mean, context wise, if they just swap teams and, and, you know, positions in the NCAA this year, you know, who knows what the outcomes would be. Right. I, I, I think Jabari Smith would probably be better than Patrick Baldwin was at, at Milwaukee if they switched, you know, roles, but you know, I don't, I don't know if Jabari Smith would be, you know, a lock for the number one pick if he was playing at Milwaukee this last year, I, I don't think he, would have been utilized as well as he was at Auburn. And even at Auburn, uh, you know, the context wasn't great, but it wasn't as bad as what Milwaukee's was for, for Patrick Baldwin. So, you know, that's, that's just one thing that, you know, I think just from an archetype standpoint, that is the archetype. And if you think there's enough to Patrick Baldwin to unlock still with that archetype, it's intriguing enough to still have a first round grade on. So, there's I, I was going to ask you a question about given that this is probably the last time you'll be on the draft deeper feed before the 2022 draft happens. I was going to ask you if there's anybody else that you wanted to shout out, which absolutely still take the opportunity to do that. But that you mentioned the, the Milwaukee and Auburn flip flop between those two guys. And it does bring an interesting question up out of these guys that we're projecting, like at, at the very top of the draft, like, what if anybody really succeeded in that Milwaukee situation from the top to where they'd still be in contention for the number one pick? Like if we're just taking that question and trying to answer it, I, I think the only guy who I could see that happening with is Paolo Bencaro. And it's interesting because I know that you're a Paolo, a number one guy, and that's something that we do touch on um, in our joint piece a little bit about Jabari Smith, but is, is that the answer for, for that question? And if we can answer that question with Paolo's name, isn't that even more of a reason why he should be in further consideration for the, for the Orlando Magic at number one? Yeah, that's interesting. I'm not sure like what Paolo would look like if because a big, a big part of you know, Paolo's offensive attractiveness is the playmaking, and there just weren't that many other, you know, obviously 
no NBA, you know, talent on that roster at Milwaukee. So it could have been tougher for him to really showcase that ability. But I think outside of Paulo, I think at the top, I think maybe Chet might be able to still go number one if he went to Milwaukee. I mean, he would still swallow up, you know, everything on defense around (laughs) the rim. He would still finish fine and over people. So I think him playing at Milwaukee, he would probably even look better than he did at Gonzaga. And I think he would just be so much bigger and, and just better than everyone in that league that it wouldn't really matter. He wouldn't be, again, asked to do on-ball creation like these other guys we talked about were or would be. Well, that's that's the aspect where I see it from, in that, like, this Milwaukee team was so bad, and their guards looked so bad at times that they couldn't even get PBJ the ball in that's some true. good spots. Like, would Chet have the same offensive opportunities to show that he can do a little bit more on that and if we have some of those questions when he was at Gonzaga with guards like Rashir Bolin and Andrew Nemhard able to get him the ball in certain spots. Like I look at it just from that perspective, Paolo, you bring up a great point about he might not have been able to show the same playmaking chops because just based on the fact that he might've been able to move the ball impressively at times, but those guys just wouldn't have been able to finish the same plays at the level that some of the Duke teammates do, but he would have the ball in his hands. He could take guys off the dribble. He can be that engine in a way that these other guys, I'm not sure that they're really going to ever be to the same extent at the NBA level. And he might've just been able to create so much for himself that he would have just poured in all the points offensively. And that might've been the biggest selling point for him, but you do make a good point about the, the, the defensive ability when it comes to chat. Yeah, no, and that's that's a good point, I think, to touch upon the offensive side with, with Chet. And, um, you know, it probably would have been tougher for him to get the ball. And then one, just one last guy, Jay Nivey, would be an intriguing one. Yep. Just given the fact that I wanted him to have the ball more <laughs> for it at Purdue, like, like why he wasn't playing, why wasn't oh he playing God. full-time point guard was insane. Yep. Uh, but obviously he would have the ball in his hands at, at, all the time at, on Milwaukee and I think he has the speed, obviously, to you know, bend defenses and just get yep. to the rim at will, even though you'd probably be double teamed, if not triple teamed on every possession. So that would just be another intriguing one to see, like, what he would look like in a different context where he was kind of the sole, you know, on-ball creator option, uh, you know, for a lower-level team. If if guys couldn't stay in front of Jay and Ivy in the Big Ten, they sure as hell wouldn't be able to do it in the horizon. And that's, that, that's the way that, that we look at that. Um, anybody else, Alex, from this draft class who you want to take the opportunity to highlight while we, we have a few minutes here before we part our ways and we come back together for the 2022 draft on our draft stream on draft night? Yeah, I think maybe, maybe Tari Eason, I think, would be one. Uh, I still have, you know, back end of the lottery grade on Tari Eason. I'm just buying the shooting. I think he'll, he'll be able to shoot it enough, especially off the catch. I think there is some, you know, intriguing offensive upside on ball. He definitely needs to improve the left hand, but he's a great finisher. He's a great athlete. Really love his transition play and just the defensive versatility that he brings. I think that, you know, it's going to be coveted at the next level. Like he has a legit chance to guard one through five and be able to bring something offensively, which is rare to find in, in basketball players. So I think he's deserving of, of a lottery pick. I don't know if he'll end up going that high. I think he's, he's probably slated for maybe later mid teens, maybe there's, but, there's a rumor out there that he might fall to my Philadelphia 76ers and 23. If they keep the pick to which if he would fall to them, then I, as a fan should feel blank about that pick. I think he should be happy. 
I mean, obviously I would shooting, shooting is like one big thing around like just getting more shooting around and beat is, is one major kind of thing. But I think just getting defensive versatility as well is just a huge upgrade. And how about just put a freaking athlete on the floor with, with Joel and beat? How about, how about we just take care of that? Right. And I, I think, I mean, you do have like Dybul, but he brings you really nothing offensively where I think Tarisen can. So he can kind of be an upgrade in that sense. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think, yeah, I did see that he is, there are rumors that he is sliding uh, on draft boards and it'll be interesting to see where he goes. I mean, I think you could see a team, like if he's slipping in the, the later first round, a team maybe trades up into, into the late half of the first round and, and tries to snag him if they're higher on him. But um, I would definitely take him still at the end of that lottery range. So I've I've said enough words about Tarice and on this podcast feed, and I've kind of made my case. But what what I don't think I've said enough, or at least I feel like I've hit home enough, is just because I don't value Tarice as this guy who I would grade closer to ten on my board than twenty. That doesn't mean that I'm allergic to drafting Tari Eason. Like, like me personally, like I know I've kind of put it out there that some people might listen to this podcast on the regular. They don't, they don't think I'm the biggest Tari Eason fan. That's not necessarily true because I still have him inside my top 20. I have him at 18 on my board to where if we start, if we talk about drafting him in that range, like the middle of the first round stretching out to where the 76ers would have that pick at 23, I would agree with you. I, I should feel absolutely ecstatic if we were able to get somebody like him at 23, because regardless of some of the questions that I personally have about his game, the upside still warrants him being taken sooner. And if he is another one of these guys who would fall and the 76ers could leap on him and they could strike gold with him, similar to how they struck gold with Tyrese Maxey, who went not, not the same case, but just he went later than he should have. Mm-hmm. And they could get another guy in that realm of Atari Easton. I would be, I would be absolutely ecstatic if I was a 76ers fan, if that happened. So I think that was a great, a great player to highlight at the end here, but Alex, thank you so much for, for taking some time out of your schedule to come on the podcast feed. I've, I've wanted to have all of you guys on at no ceilings. And I've said this on every single episode that I've, I've done with one of you guys, but this opportunity that I've had this year to work with each and every one of you, and, and hopefully you and I will be able to work closer together in the future on some projects like we're doing with Jabari Smith piece. I 100% respect everything that you did in the space before you got to know Seals and being able to read some of your stuff and, and interact with you on a much more regular basis this year. It's been awesome, man. You truly are. You, you Maxwell, Metcalf, Nick, everybody on here were some of the best minds in the basketball space, not just the draft space. So to get to work with you on some things, it's been an absolute honor, man. I'm sorry I didn't get you on, on the podcast feed sooner, but I'm glad you joined me tonight. And, and seriously, thank you for everything that you've done for No Sillings this year. The I, I can't wait. I can't wait for the future, man. So plug yourself for, for my audience. Plug everywhere that they can find you and all of your work, because if they haven't already, I said you're one of the most creative minds we have in No Sillings. They need to read everything you've done for us because you've truly been a spectacular piece to, to this team. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I echo all that, all that. And on to you as well. It's been great kind of joining the, the no ceilings collective this year. It's been a great year. We've gotten a lot of support from, from Twitter, from YouTube, from really much everywhere. Uh, everyone that bought the draft guide and bought our merch. I mean, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts. It means the world to us. And uh, you know, it's only just, just the beginnings. 
so we look forward to continue on bringing more content, um, you know, written, video, you know, live, whatever it may be. Um, just can't wait, excited for the future. Uh, but yeah, you could follow me at Draft Film School on Twitter. All my writing, as Nate mentioned, is on No Ceilings NBA. Uh, you know, I've wrote, I've written about uh, Jake Laravia, Tari Eason, um, you know, writing about Jabari Smith, uh, just wrote about AJ Griffin. So a lot of the guys we did talk about today, I have written our past articles on, so you can go back and, and take a read at those before the draft comes and, you know, almost, almost less than a week now, almost. Uh, it's, so it's wild. It's wild. Eight, we, we, eight, we need eight, a break eight, though, right? Yeah. Thank God. <laughs> yeah. We need at least a week and then we'll put, we'll, we'll like put out like a 2023 early board or something like the week after the draft and, and get crazy with it and just start pumping out stuff again. Definitely. And, and, and thank you, especially thank you everyone out there who took the time to listen to this episode of the podcast. If you aren't subscribed to the draft deeper podcast, please do so wherever you get your podcast Apple podcast, Spotify, YouTube, make sure that you're following me on Twitter at draft deeper. And as I said at the top at no ceilings, NBA on Twitter, no ceilings, is where you can subscribe to our Substack newsletter, free 99 content every day, Monday through Friday on the NBA draft. We have plenty more coming on our YouTube channel as well, No Ceilings TV. Make sure you stay tuned on all of those fronts for updates on how we're going to be doing a 2022 NBA draft live stream. I'm so excited about what we're going to come together and do for for that show. We have some very special things planned. And as Alex mentioned, if you want to support us, Go check out the merch at nocillingsmba.bigcartel.com. It's where you can find all your T-shirts, sweatshirts, shorts. I got some flip-flops. No Ceilings flip-flops coming in the mail. I got a No Ceilings coffee mug coming in the mail. I can't wait to be able to rep all of this awesome merch. And you can be one of the cool kids too. Go check out nocillingsmba.bigcartel.com where you can find that as well as the draft guide that Alex mentioned. We still have a week before the draft if you need to catch up on all of the guys that we have ranked 1 through 58 on our No Ceilings NBA composite big board. You can purchase the draft guide. Go check out all those profiles that we did. Go check out the work that we put into that. It's it's an incredible draft guide. But until we meet again on this podcast feed, thank you all for listening. And I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week.